Hebrews chapter 4, and the reading is not long. We're going to read from verse 14 down to verse 16, quite familiar verses to some, I would think, out of the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and the first word connects this section with what's gone before, so I'll just take a minute or two and fill in what's gone before uh, once I've finished the reading. So verse 14 reads, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's our text for this evening. Now, it's been a wee while since we've been in the book of Hebrews uh, because of the summer break, but if you can remember back, then you will remember that the author has been relentlessly building his case for the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all that they had left behind, those believers, all that they had left behind in their Judaism. And you remember we uh, pointed out and we've uh, reiterated this uh, week by week that what they left behind with all of the building temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the great ceremonies, they have come left, they've left all that and they've come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and in so doing they've come and left behind all that is tangible physical that appeals to the senses and they're now following and trusting in a man that they can't see that's no longer there that's in heaven and there's nothing tangible in that sense there's nothing to appeal to the senses in that sense welcome chaps I know it's been a bad journey but glad to see you from Hebrews 4 verse 14 through to verse 16 just started and we've seen that what he does in this epistle is present the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to everything that they left behind. Showing that he not only fulfills a lot of what they left behind, but he is superior to what they left behind. He's even superior, we saw, to angels. In fact, he's the creator of the angels and the angels worship and serve him. He's superior to Moses. And of course, Moses was held in such high esteem by the Jews and all of the history of Israel connected to Moses. We've seen in our studies, the Lord Jesus is superior to Moses. He's not on the same level as Moses. He is far above Moses. He is without sin. He's the mediator of a better covenant with much greater promises. And now we come to this section here where we're going to be introduced to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. So we've seen that he is superior in his own person. His name is superior. It's at the beginning of the epistle. And we've seen as we've come through that he in his sinless perfection is superior to the greatest of men. But now in his function, in his role, in his service, if you like, he as the high priest, the great high priest, is superior to all of those priests that went before. And even the greatest of them, Aaron and, and Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus, is far superior to that. And this little section commences and introduces to this subject. Now we did see that the Lord Jesus in this epistle has two great offices. 
in chapter 3 and verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, number one, the apostle, and number two, high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And so you have these two great offices of the Lord Jesus Christ in this epistle. You remember that the Lord Jesus came from God to man, and he came with a message. He came as a message. He was sent. He is an apostle, a sent one. And he was here sent by God. But he is also a high priest. And it's not now that he came from the presence of God to be with men. He was sent from God to man. He came with and as the message of God to men. But now he has gone from men back into the presence of God. And so he has approached God in the presence of God, in the very third heaven, if you like, that we'll speak about, and he's there representing men before God. So as an apostle, he represented God before men. As the high priest, he represents us before God. And these two great offices are in this epistle. Now let me just speak a little about this idea of the Lord Jesus as priest, never mind high priest. Now in the New Testament, this is the book that really presents the Lord Jesus in this way. But the truth is contained in Old Testament prophecy. For example, if you were to go to Psalm 110 and verse 4, it says this, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's back in the book of Psalms. And that prophecy is about the Lord Jesus. And so you've got this prophecy in the Old Testament referring to the Lord Jesus as a priest. Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says this about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. He hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's priestly language. In the Old Testament, if you take the time and you read about the priests of the Old Testament, you discover this, that in their service, their work was to do with the transgression and sins of others and the sacrifices that were made and brought before God. The priests were integral to that whole system. The Lord Jesus, in his sacrifice, says he bare the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13 says this of the Lord Jesus prophetically. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now we get that. The Lord Jesus is sovereign. The Lord Jesus is divine. The Lord Jesus is royal. And there's coming a day when he will come back to this earth to reign and he will sit as a king. He will reign as a king. But not just a king. It says this, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So Zechariah is saying that the one who will sit and reign is also the priest. Now that was foreign to the Old Testament. 
You could not have a king who would function as a priest. They were to be separated. You remember what happened to Uzziah. Isaiah refers to this in the year that King Uzziah died. And why did Uzziah die in the Old Testament? Because as a king, he went where he should never have gone and did what he should never have done, which is function as a priest before God in places that only the priest should have been. And he was smitten down by God because he was taking the place that is exclusively reserved in God's dealings with mankind for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sit as a priest upon his throne in a coming day. So the Old Testament prophecies all point forward to this aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, this priestly function, representing men before God. Now you come to the book of Hebrews and you discover that this priestly character is introduced right at the beginning of the epistle. In chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, In the sevenfold glories of the Lord Jesus Christ presented in these three verses, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, here it is, when he had by himself purged our sins. So there the writer to the Hebrews says at the cross, the Lord Jesus was functioning in a priestly capacity. He himself purged our sins, made purification for our sins. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So you have the priestly aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not just a priest, a high priest. Now what is the difference between the priest and the high priest in the Old Testament? Well, the high priest actually is the designation given to the Lord Jesus in the book of Hebrews when he's spoken about in his priestly capacity. And the references are mainly to the great events surrounding what's called the Day of Atonement in the calendar of Israel, one day a year. And you go to Leviticus chapter 16 and you have the, the uh, ceremonies and significance of that day explained. Sometimes we forget, if you know a little about the Old Testament, that there was a sacrificial system in place. There were offerings that the Israelites had to bring to God. Now, why was that? Let me just give you the big picture. Why was that? Well, actually, when you go back to the book of Genesis, you discover this, that when Adam sinned and when Eve sinned, there was a problem. They no longer could enjoy intimacy with the Lord. Before they sinned, the Lord would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day. There was no need for sacrifices. There was no need for a mediator. There was no need for a priest to, to, to represent them before the Lord. They could have direct contact with the Lord because there was no sin there. Now what happened when sin came into the world was that that direct contract, contact could no longer be maintained. There had to be a distance. There had to be a separation for the sake of Adam and Eve. For their preservation. And so they to be put out of the Garden of Eden. And the, 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 the way back to the Garden of Eden was blocked by those angels. And it was for their own good and preservation. And so God could no longer enjoy that intimacy with his, cre with his creatures. But you then discover that he began to have relationship with individuals. What we call patriarchs. In the book of Genesis. Those outstanding people that God formed a relationship with. Uh, men of faith and, and men who understood God. And men who came to God in faith. And, and some of them are described in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. So we know some of them. 
And you've heard of them. Abraham's predecessors. But then God changes his dealings and he no longer will have dealings just with individuals. But he now will have dealings with a nation. So he commences this by calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 out of out of the Chaldees and giving him big promises that we call covenants and establishing a relationship with him, but not just with him, with his descendants. And he chooses out this special people out of all the peoples of the earth. Not because there was anything particularly good in them or significant in them or numerous in them. In fact, the exact opposite. He chose them because he loved them and he called them and they responded and he set his love upon them and he formed this unique relationship with this nation of Israel, which, by the way, he has never broken. And so this nation grew in Egypt. You remember they were down there in slavery and then they came out. Moses brought them out. So now they are a nation. And they're going to occupy a land. And God wants to dwell amongst his people like he did in the book of Genesis. But you see, it's not now an individual that's sin. It's a whole nation of people that sin. And how often do they sin? They sin every day. They sin all day. So how can God come down and be amongst his people who are a sinful people? His presence amongst his people will destroy his people because of their sin and because of the holiness of God. So what God does is he institutes a system that will enable him to dwell amongst his people as long as they are obedient to him, marked by faith and obedience, and as long as they utilize that sacrificial system with spiritual intelligence, they'll have a relationship with God. He will dwell amongst them. Now what is the system? It was a system of sacrifice, of shedding of blood of animals that would be killed and blood that would be taken and it would be sprinkled and it would be poured out and and animals would be slaughtered and all of that had to be done according to the regulations that he gave that's the Old Testament sacrificial system and now God can be amongst his people because there are sacrifices that are being made Now, these sacrifices didn't deal with the sin problem. God brought that system in place as a temporary measure, looking forward to the sending of his own son, the Lord Jesus, that would deal with sin once and for all, sins past, present, and future. And so God can be amongst his ancient people in anticipation of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, and all of these sacrifices and offerings for these hundreds of years were all just pointing forward, all anticipating, all demonstrating some aspect of the wonderful sacrifice that the Lord make himself. So when, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross, offers himself in sacrifice, there's no longer any need for these anticipatory animal sacrifice because the realities come so that's why we don't have a system of animal sacrifice there's no need because the Lord Jesus has come and he's given himself in sacrifice and that is sufficient it's a propitiatory sacrifice it satisfies the wrath of a holy God it's not an atoning sacrifice covering over sins in anticipation of that sacrifice atonement's really an Old Testament truth propitiation is is the New Testament. 
Now, one of those sacrifices, that's all to get to this, one of those sacrifices took place on the Day of Atonement. It was a big day in the year of the people of God, the Israelites. You see, these sacrifices, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, and so on, the burnt offering, and the wood offering, the drink offering, all of those sacrifices were offered often. And none of them, by the way, sin and trespass offering, dealt with deliberate sin. None of them. If you look at all of these sacrifices, they dealt with sins that were unintentional or unknown. So what about the deliberate sin? Ah, this was the Day of Atonement. And this would take place with all the nation gathered. And you read the details in Leviticus 16, and you have these two goats brought before the high priest who's representing the whole nation, symbolically. And all the sin that the nation's committed throughout the whole year, he's there representing them. And that's why he puts his hand on one of the, the goats' head. Uh, and symbolically he transfers the guilt and transgression and sin of a nation upon an animal who bears it and is taken away ultimately by the hand of a fit man abandoned in the wilderness and another one upon whom the Lord's lot fell was slain and the blood is applied. And read the details and you'll discover this, that the high priest was central to that great day. And he would go away in once a year, and it was on that day, into the holiest of all, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in the land, and through the outer court, through the holy place, into the very sanctuary of God upon earth, with blood. Now if he doesn't come out, the nation's in trouble, because God hasn't accepted the sacrifice. That, by the way, is what, what the bells and pomegranates around the, the skirts of his garments were all about. They could hear him before they could see him coming back out. And he would put off these holy garments and, and the garments of glory and beauty would go back on and, and the nation would rejoice. The sacrifice had been accepted. Well, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you discover this, that what he did on the cross of Calvary in the book of Hebrews is very much a fulfilment of what you see typically in that day of atonement. Look at the three appearings of the Lord Jesus in the book of Hebrews, and you discover that's linked to the appearing of the, the high priest in the day of atonement. So he's functioning as a high priest, and we're introduced to him as such here in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest. He's not just the high priest prophesied. He is, but he's the high priest. And mind you, the high priest, well, there was a lot said about the high priest in the Old Testament. All of it, of course, was true of the Lord Jesus. I, I just, just check on this. Aaron was the first high priest. And so, as I said, he's to be the man that stands between the people and God, the mediator between Jehovah and, and Israel. And he acts especially for them in the Day of Atonement representatively. But he was bound to a higher degree of scrutiny and ritual purity than the ordinary Levitical priests. For example, no contact with dead bodies, including those of his parents. He couldn't tear his clothing or allow his hair to grow as signs of mourning. He couldn't marry a widow, a divorced woman, a harlot, only an Israelite virgin. 
Any sin committed by the high priest brought guilt upon the entire nation and had to be counted by special sacrifice. You get that in Leviticus chapter 4. And upon a high priest's death, manslayers were released from the cities of refuge. You know, that's all fascinating stuff in the Old Testament when you read it. Greater responsibility, greater accountability, greater scrutiny, greater privilege. And there could only ever be one high priest at any given time. Or should have been. You know, of course, when the Lord Jesus was here, that there were two. But there should never have been one. Well, he is a high priest, but listen, he's more than that. The writer says, what I want to say to you Christians is that you no longer are going into the temple. You no longer can look to Caiaphas or whoever is occupying uh, the office of high priest in Israel at that time. You no longer will see blood sacrifices. You no longer will smell the incense. Nor will you have that great day of atonement or the Passover or anything like that anymore. But what you do have is this. You have a great high priest. Not a high priest, not a priest, a great high priest. And there are at least four reasons why he is a great high priest. Number one, his person. Hebrews 7, verse 26 to 27 tells us that for such a high priest became us who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The Lord Jesus in himself, in his person, is superior. He is great in relation to his sinless perfection. Secondly, the greatness of his office. We're going to discover that he is not just a priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not of the ironic line, but Melchizedek. Different, unique. So you have his person, you have his office, you have his sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verse 26. For then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He offered one sacrifice, not many, and it dealt with sin. And lastly, the greatness of his present position and entrance. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into a temple. He didn't go into a tabernacle. You know, the high priest would, would literally walk into a building with literal blood and it would be sprinkled on him before the mercy seat. A literal mercy seat made of gold. The Lord Jesus Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands. These are figures of the true. But he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is our great high priest, as great in relation to his person, great in relation to his sacrifice, his position, his, his order of priesthood. There's a greatness about Christ. He's transcendent. It says this, we have a great high priest. Then it says that it's passed into the heavens. It's an unfortunate translation now. It's more the idea of passed through and into the heavens. It's the idea of entrance, of triumphant entrance. The word could be translated to pierce through. 
the perfect tense, meaning a past completed action with present ongoing benefits. It happened completely, and the effect of it's been ongoing ever since. It speaks about the permanence of his entrance. They would have watched that high priest in the days of the temple pass through the holy place, out of sight. Out of sight. Into the very holy of holies, over which the Shekinah glory, represented by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, The Ark of the Covenant in the midst. The mercy seat symbolising the presence of the living God. And they would have watched them go in. But you know a greater thing? was when the disciples stood and gazed up into heaven. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? That was a greater entrance. Triumphant. He passed through and into the reality represented in that physical tabernacle and temple. And as he passed through, he did so in reality. Do you know, what is the significance of that? Well, you know, when the blood was shed from these animals and the high priest got the blood and then transported the blood into that which represented the very presence of God. His work on behalf of the people, that atoning work on behalf of the people was not finished until the blood was taken in. You see, if these animals had been slain and nothing else had happened, then the sacrifice would not have been accepted. The blood had to be taken by the high priest. He had to, first of all, ensure that he was covered by the sacrifice and then he could represent the nation and go in and it was the sprinkling of the blood that completed the atoning work. And that is the significance of the entrance of Christ. If Christ had died on the cross but never risen from the dead, if Christ had died from the cross and never ascended into the glory, the work would not have been completed. It required the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when you hear the exposition of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ is so significant. He needed to enter in through the veil, that is to say his flesh, opening up a new and living way. And as a result of him entering in, he took that sacrifice, he took that blood, as if to speak, right into the very presence of the reality, not the figure. Not the picture, not the physical. And by so doing, completed his propitiatory work. 9 verse 12, Hebrews 9 verse 12. By his own blood, he entered into the holy place once, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And in so doing, by the way, he demonstrated his mastery over Satan. Oh, it had taken place in his death. Remember that the Hebrew writer says, he destroyed him that is the power of death. That is the devil and did it through death itself. And so by his dying and by his death, he destroyed Satan and his greatest power and he ascended in demonstration of that victory. Triumphantly. And that passing through is seen, the word really is the idea of triumph. You remember the idea of 
the triumphal procession as the returning conquering Roman general would bring through the city the evidence of his triumph and there would be slaves and so on and they were all shown through the city in a great triumph that's by the way what's in the centre of Paris uh, the triumph. same idea and the point doing the same uh, and so the Lord Jesus Christ, think about it this way, he, he overcomes Satan, destroys him on the cross. He, he breaks the power of death in his resurrection and in his ascension, he demonstrates his mastery over Satan by going right through the realm of Satan's power, which, remember this, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That's where his power lies. And the Lord Jesus in a triumphant procession, entered into heaven right through the domain of Satan, demonstrating that Satan was a defeated foe. Couldn't touch him. Not all the powers of hell, not all the powers of the evil one could keep the Lord Jesus from entering in. And so he did. And when you come to the end of all of that, Hebrews 8 verse 1 summarizes it. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. There's a summary. Well, Paul, will, uh, Paul the writer, will develop all of this. And he describes him as Jesus, the son of God. Now to a Jew, this was just very difficult. Remember, it's the same thing which the Lord confronted the Pharisees with when they were asserting that Messiah would be the son of David in Matthew 22 and verse 43. Then he asked them a very difficult question. How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? And he gave him a wee teaser. Well, if he's going to be the son, how, how can he then call him Lord? And that issue about the incarnation of Messiah, that issue about the incarnation of the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus being the Son of God, was one of the critical issues that caused them to hate the Lord Jesus so much. Jesus, the Son of God. So you have this truth, which I've tried to summarise. We have, as Christians, remember this, we have a representative who's greater than any human representative. But we have a man in the glory. You've heard that expression. And we know that because the name Jesus is used. And that's the name that's identified with his life here upon earth. There's a man in the glory who's the son of God. And he's there as our great high priest. Not that he was our great high priest. But he is our great high priest. Which means that today. You and I have. A representative in the very presence of God who's been here and who speaks for us there. He's our great high priest. Well, if that be so, then the writer says this. Here's the challenge. Because the word seeing is linked to the last expression in verse 14, let us hold fast. So there's the thought flow so on the basis that, then let us do. So on the basis that we have come to an understanding in our mind of something, that ought to affect what we do in our lives. Let us, he says, 
Hold fast, lay hold of, cling tightly to, is the idea. To keep on holding, present tense, to keep on clinging. To what? Well, there's the question. Because as Christians, we need to consider the answer to that question. What do you and I cling on to? Even in terms of Christianity, what do we cling on to? What is precious to us? You know, some of these American preachers, they talk about closed fist and open fist in relation to what they've learned from the Bible. And they say that closed fist is the non-negotiable essentials of the gospel and so on. And open fist are those things that scripture is not dogmatic about and it's left to our discernment. So and they speak about open fist and closed fist. Well, the writer says here, on the basis that we have a high priest, a great high priest, there is something that you should not let go of, that you should cling tightly to. It's closed fist, not open fist. What is that? Well, you can answer that for yourself. I'll answer it for myself, but it may not be the things that we immediately think of. So you ask yourself the question, what are the things that are the most important to you, even in relation to the gospel, even in relation to your Christian life? What, what's the big deal? If, you're going to, if someone's going to say to you, you know, answer that question, what is of most importance to you? What do you place as of supreme importance in your Christian life? Well, the writer says here, we need to cling on to our profession. Now, we use that word profession a bit loosely because sometimes we use it to speak about a form of words that we say when we get saved or when someone um, is professing to be saved. We use that profession, that word there. That's not the idea. It's the reality here. And it's what he has already taught. It's the finished and accepted sacrifice of Christ for sins. It's the deity of Christ. It's the true humanity of Christ. Son of God, Son of Man. It's the perpetual, royal, personal, effective, priestly ministry of Christ on our behalf. He says, don't let it go. Don't let it go that Christ is truly man and truly God. Don't let it go that his sacrifice was sufficient and enough and more than enough to satisfy God. Don't let it go that he's for you in the glory as your great high priest. Cling on to it tightly. When the pressure comes, don't let it go. When the persecution comes, don't let it go. Don't drift back. Don't slip back. Cling on tightly to this. Why? Why should you cling on tightly to this? Well, look at verse 15 and the connecting first word of the verse, which is the word for. So this is an explanation. This is the reason for us to hold fast. Seeing we have, we ought to, why ought we to do this? The word for is going to tell us. He says, for we have not an high priest. Now we're talking about the character of our high priest. So the very character of our high priest is a motivating factor to cling on to our profession. This is not talking about clinging on to, to keep being saved. This is talking about holding fast to those things because you are saved. So it's why we can, why we should Hold fast to our profession. We have a sympathetic and we have an experienced high priest. He is the son of God, but he's able and willing to be involved in your 
life. Most of us don't believe that. Most of us don't think about it. Even if we do, we don't often think about it. He says, it's a double negative, so you can read it in the positive. We have a high priest which can be touched. It says the same thing as we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. With the feelings of our infirmities. Now what does that mean? Touched with the feeling. Now I'll give you a quotation. It's a compound word. It's two words put together. And it means to suffer with. To suffer with. Thus, to sympathise, really empathise, with an individual, this is the quote, to the extent of entering into his experience and feeling his heartache yourself. To suffer with. The use of the word here means more than a knowledge of human infirmity. It points to a knowledge that has in it a feeling for the other person because of common experience. Jesus, the Son of God. It's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Let me try and think of a suitable illustration. You can feel... Let's go to the extreme. Okay, so think about warfare. Someone comes back from a conflict... And they come back into our society, back into civilian life. And they're traumatised by the things that they've experienced. These things are not normal. Uh, and so the people who have not experienced those things can really feel for that individual. Maybe a loved one or, or someone in the community. And their heart could break for them as they see the effect of their experience upon them. And they may make an effort to help them as much as they can. And they're sympathising with the person. And it's not fake, it's real. They genuinely sympathise. Here's another person in the community and he served. So he's been in the battlefield. He's experienced what this other man has experienced. He has been in the trenches, so to speak. And he comes back as well. And there's a bond between the two of them. What causes the bond? Shared experience. They know that each other has been through the same thing. So when they talk, it's a different conversation. It's a conversation based on empathy, not sympathy. The Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, is able to empathise with us because he's been here. He's, he's been where you are. He's gone through the sorts of things. Not everything, obviously, but he's been through what life brings in the common round of life. He's known bereavement. He's known rejection. He's known friendship. He's known the betrayal of friendship. He's known good days, bad days. He ran a lot of business in a pretty harsh town. He would know what it was like to chase bills, to do work, to all the rest that goes on in life. He's been there. He's seen it. He's done it. Because this is empathy. And by the way, the writer says this, True sympathy or empathy usually is a fairly quiet, time-intensive, presence-intensive thing. It's when you go and visit someone who has suffered loss that you've not suffered for, and the only thing that you can actually do is sit down and say nothing, because you've nothing to say. You've never been there. It's what Job's friends did for seven days 
and it went well, and when they started to talk, it went badly. First seven days, they said, said absolutely nothing, and it was a help. Then they started to give their own wisdom, and it didn't go so well. You see, they couldn't really empathise. And with what, what, what's it been? What are infirmities? He's, he can be touched, he can sympathise, he can empathise with the feeling of our infirmities. That's the word weaknesses, means to be without strength. It's the frailty of manhood. It's the difficulties of work and family and relationship and exhaustion and bereavement and disappointment and hunger and thirst and jealousy and envy and the full orbit of human experience. He describes it as infirmity, weakness. You know, the manhood of the Lord Jesus was real. It wasn't characterised in the slightest by sin. But it was real nonetheless. That's why he sits wearied with his journey. That's why he sheds tears when his heart's moved with compassion. That's why he stops in the road when there's a woman tugging at the hem of his garment. He's not insensitive to her, to her experience. He can be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. That's what it must have been for him to stand there and to be, to be abused and humiliated and beaten. says this, he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Now the word tempted there is a morally neutral word. It doesn't mean that there was anything in him to respond to the temptation at all, but it does mean this, that the temptation was, was put upon him and the weight of it was felt by him. And he didn't sin. Ryrie says this, not that Christ experienced every temptation man does, but rather he was tempted in all areas in which man is tempted. And with particular temptations designed for him by Satan himself. He goes on and says, our Lord was distinct from all other men and that he was without sin. He possessed no sin nature as we do. And because he endured and successfully passed his testing, he can now offer us mercy and grace to help in time of need, for he knows what we are going through. And here he comes to verse 16. Here is the, here's the climax of the little section. So get the flow of thought. Seeing, let us, for, and now let us. That's the flow of thought through these verses. Because the last let us has a therefore after it. So here is the kind of culmination of his, of his little section let us therefore on the basis of all I've just said what should we then do he says let us therefore come boldly this is the practical impact of what he's been teaching it's what we must continually do to approach to come near present tense to continually draw near in contrast to Sinai where the people are told to stay away it's the opposite now we're told to draw near with confidence, not with, with, with pride or arrogance, but with openness, without trepidation, without fear, because of Christ. And we come to a throne of grace, not a mountain of terror. The throne speaks of authority and power. Grace conveys the idea of sympathy and understanding. It's a beautiful blend of Christ and his absolute power and his absolute compassion. Now, what do you get at the throne of grace that you don't get anywhere else? I mean anywhere else. You don't get it through your relationships with your spouse, with your friends. You don't get it through any other book 
no matter whether it's commentaries or, or, or Christian character characterised books or whatever, you don't get it um, through fellowship. This is something that's uniquely received by you and me in a particular place. It's the only place it get, you get it from. The throne of grace. He says, you will there obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. Often he has a difference between grace and mercy. You don't go to ministry meetings for very long until you hear this kind of stuff. To obtain mercy, I read some definitions and I noted them. The essential thought is that mercy gives attention to those in misery. It's active compassion for those in distress. One quote says this, It is the self-moved, spontaneous, loving kindness of God which causes him to deal in compassion and tender affection with the miserable and distressed. That's Hybert. Woos says this, Grace meets man's need in respect to his guilt and lost condition. Mercy with respect to his suffering as a result of that condition. Grace. Another uh, quote, grace is God's solution to man's sin. Mercy is God's solution to man's misery. Grace covers the sin, mercy removes the pain. Grace forgives, mercy restores. Grace gives us what we don't deserve, mercy withholds what we do. Beautiful contrast. Grace and mercy. You don't get it anywhere else. You just don't. As a Christian, if you don't get to that throne of grace, you will live a life without it. You become hard, cynical, cold. You'll find sin tough to deal with. You'll live with guilt and shame. You need to get to the throne of grace. You get to the throne of grace by bending your knees and praying. There's no other way to get to that place. You have to pray. Not be in a room where people are praying. That's one thing. It's a good thing. Not being in a family where parents are praying. That's a good thing. You need to make your way there yourself. So you bend your own knees and you speak to God. Throw the grace. No one is too young to come to that throne. No one too old. The Lord Jesus is there. And he will give you what you need because he says you will obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now remember when the first time I, I read this, I've enjoyed it every time I've read it. I would give it to you. I've probably given it to you before. But that word help appears in Acts 27 and verse 17. And it's the shipwreck of Paul in Acts chapter 27. And during the narrative, it says this, which, and the ship's breaking up basically. And remember, it's a wooden ship. And it says, which when they are taken up, they used, here's a word, helps. Undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, they strake sail and so are driven. It's the idea of frapping, they call it. It's taking ropes when these wooden vessels were breaking up under a storm or in a storm and 
they would put ropes right underneath the vessel, sliding them from the bow back, and they would basically tie the boat together, and they would hold it together. The idea is just this, that when you come to the throne of grace, then you need. The Lord Jesus gives you what you need so that you don't fall apart. So when your life feels as if it's falling apart, you get yourself to the throne of grace and he gives you what holds you together. No one else can give it to you. Grace and mercy. It's that seemingly intangible experience when you stand up again and the darkness is lightened. It is a ministry of Christ into the depth of your soul that can't be explained. It's pouring grace and mercy to the dark recesses of despair. It's that perfect, that sympathetic, that experienced, capable, enabling high priest who has shed his own precious blood out of love and devotion and he is still ministering on our behalf to those who come to his throne. So in a day when people are in despair and there are many in despair and when people are in despair and there is no hope for them and they cannot find a solution and you know, especially young ones know that so many just find a solution by finishing their life because there's just despair. They can't hold it together and no one can hold it together for them. Not so the Christian. The encouragement is come to the throne of grace. Let Christ minister to your soul. Let him pour into you that which will keep you together when the storm comes. So he says this. Come. Come boldly. Come to the throne of grace. And there you will experience the ministry of Christ, our great high priest. I always say the Bible class, if you're here for the first time and not heard this, but I always usually say, at least usually say to the Bible class that, you know, it's one thing listening to that sort of thing, and it's one thing maybe even agreeing with it or seeing it in the actual text, and that's a good thing. But actually the reason for seeing it in the text is that in this week to follow, when you do hit the buffers, or before you do, then you allow Christ to minister to you. So the week will be better. Than otherwise it would have been. Let's just pray.